Christ alone is our cornerstone. And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 7 this morning, which I think drives that truth home in a really powerful way. You know, this week is our uh, last week in the Gospel of Matthew for a while. We'll come back to it again in the fall. But we've been looking, especially actually over the last 12 sections on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And here we are drawing near to our destination today. We're actually going to finish up this section on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Uh, And we're going to then, in the summertime, transition into a series on the book of Proverbs called The Way of Wisdom. Now, how many of you remember, uh, I think it was probably in the early 2000s, when this little uh, uh, contraption came out called a GPS navigation system? You remember that? With a little suction cup, you could put it on your dashboard or you could put it on your windshield. Um, I remember the first, I think I got one for my birthday, probably around 2005. So this was before smartphones, okay? And so I got this GPS thing, which I thought was the greatest thing ever, because I lived at the time in Birmingham, Alabama. Now, you remember I grew up in uh, Kansas where all the roads were north and south, 90 degree turns. There was not a curvy road anywhere in the state. OK, and so it was easy. You go north for four miles, you turn and go west for uh, you go west for two miles. You know, it was just simple to find your way around. Well, then I moved to Birmingham where it was just a maze. OK, all the roads were curvy. And, and so my in-laws gave me this GPS, which I thought was the best thing ever. It was going to show me exactly where to go in the city of Birmingham. Um if you remember those first generations of GPSs, though, right, you'd be driving along and all of a sudden the screen would go blank. And that's even worse than having no directions at all, because I hadn't asked anybody how I was supposed to get there. Um, and so or, or you make a wrong turn. You remember this and it would say recalculating, recalculating. And it would just keep saying that over and over again. Uh, and you'd just be stuck. Well, thank goodness. Uh, now we have these things called iPhones, right, with Google Maps. Uh, we have Siri or Apple Maps, or maybe you have Waze. All these different apps you can use to find your way home or find your way to your destination. And as I found out with that GPS, that old Garmin, uh, it's important to make sure you're following the right directions, that you have a reliable source of directions. And so what we're looking at in our text today in Matthew chapter 7 is that Jesus basically asks us that question. He says, whose instructions are you following? Which way are you trying to go? And he says, there's really only one way that will lead you to the right destination. And we're going to talk about that this morning. Uh, As we've said, this whole series has been called the gospel of the kingdom, the good news about how you can be a citizen of God's kingdom. And here's the thing. The kingdom has a king and his name is Jesus. And here at Trinity Church, uh, as Christians, we are all about following the King. Follow Him, listen to Him. He has good news for you this morning. So if you will, look in your Bibles. Um, We're going to actually start at the very end of our passage today in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. This is the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so remember, the Sermon on the Mount is one of the longest sermons Jesus gives in the New Testament. It's Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. He gives some amazing instructions in there. In fact, even non-Christian, just people in the world look at this and say, what a great example of teaching. It's some amazing things to live your life by. But it's more than that. Because it shows us how to have a relationship with the living God. And so let's look at Matthew 7, 28 and 29. This is how Jesus ends this amazing sermon. Uh, Here's what he says. When Jesus had finished saying these things... The crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority 
and not as their teachers of the law. All right, so what we have going on here is the people who heard Jesus give these instructions were amazed by it. And it's my hope, brothers and sisters, that over these weeks, as we've looked at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you've been amazed, astonished even, at the wisdom that Jesus pours out and the way that he says, here's how you follow me. Here's how you follow me. In fact, if we go back to the beginning of the sermon, flip back in your Bibles a couple pages, actually even before the beginning of the sermon, look at Matthew 4, verse 19 in your Bibles. Matthew four nineteen. This is when Jesus is going out and he's about to recruit some of these guys to come follow him. Who does he recruit? The powerful, the famous, the smart, the intelligent, the beautiful? No. He goes to the fishermen. And he says this, Matthew four nineteen. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. So that's what Jesus says. I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me so that I can help you help others to follow me. Follow me, and that means to be a disciple. A disciple is a follower or a learner, someone who learns and follows. Um, and so when we get to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, look back in your Bibles at Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2. This is the beginning of that great sermon. This is what it says. Jesus, uh, It says this, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. In verse 2, And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying... So this is where Jesus begins. He says, if you've come and followed me, you're my disciple. You're someone who's following me. Let me teach you how to do that. And Matthew 5 through 7 is one of the best descriptions we have in Scripture of what it means to follow Jesus, to follow him, to learn from him, to be his disciple. A couple things before we move on. Now, remember that the people recognized that Jesus taught them as one who had authority. He was the king. His name is Jesus. What did he teach? Remember the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he lists off what the blessed life looks like. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He goes on in Matthew 6 to teach us how to pray. How amazing is that? The God of the universe says, I want you to talk to me. I want you to have a conversation with me. I want you to pray with me. And when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven. So he instructs us in that. He also says in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Talks about true treasure. He says, don't worry. Remember that message? It's a message we all need to hear right now. Don't worry. Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged. Matthew seven twelve, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. All these things that Jesus lays out here in the Sermon on the Mount are his way of telling his followers, here's how you follow me. If you're truly going to follow me, follow my words in this sermon. So the king says these things to us. And when the king says them to you, listen. The king has spoken. And so today we're going to look at three more pictures. That's one of the things I love about the Sermon on the Mount. I think why it resonates with people so well is that Jesus lays out pictures that we can understand. Even the dumbest farmer from Kansas can understand these pictures, okay? You can understand what Jesus is trying to say because he illustrates amazing truths with basic pictures. And so we're going to look at three more pictures. Actually, it's three more contrasts. He sets up three contrasts today so that he can summarize what it actually means to follow him. This kind of summarizes all of his teaching. 
uh, as we look at these verses in the end of Matthew chapter 7. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to look at verse 13 uh, and go on. Uh, We're just going to read the first two verses to start off uh, and look at that first point in your bulletin. So it says this, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So this first picture that Jesus gives us is really this contrast of two paths or two roads. Two roads going different directions. Two ways. I love that word way. We're going to talk about the way of wisdom all summer long. And Jesus says, if you follow me, you are following the way of wisdom. You notice that this first picture that he gives us is actually in the form of an invitation. He says, enter by the narrow gate. Come inside through the narrow gate. So he's inviting us to begin this journey with him by entering through the narrow gate. But he contrasts that with the wide gate. So when I think about the wide gate, I think about a freeway. We have a few people in here who lived in California. Do you all miss that that highway in California? Anybody? Ernie, do you miss that at all? <laughs> a little bit? Okay. But uh, this whole idea of, of traveling down a freeway where everybody's going the same direction, it's the easy way to go. Um, but Jesus says that the wide gate and the easy road leads to destruction. And what's he talking about here? It's easy to go along with what the world tells you. It's easy to go along with whatever feels good, whatever looks good, whatever tastes good, whatever you think is going to make you happy. The world says, come on, join us. Let's all do it together. Let's go down that freeway. But Jesus says, there's a better way. It's the way that I designed life to be lived. And he calls it the narrow gate, the narrow road. So if you look at this picture, it's a narrow path going through the mountains There's fog, mist. You don't know what's coming next. But Jesus says, if you stay on that narrow path, the path that I laid out, and it's a hard path. It's hard because the world is telling you to do what's easy. The world is telling you to go another direction. It's hard because you have to deny yourself. He says, if you follow this way, what does it say? It leads to life. It leads to life, and those who find it are few. So, brothers and sisters, when you look at these two pictures, the wide road and this narrow path, Jesus says, what I'm offering you is a path that leads to life. Yes, it's going to be difficult, but follow me. Proverbs calls this the way of wisdom. So that brings us to this first point we're trying to make this morning, and that is this, that true followers of Jesus walk by faith. True followers of Jesus walk by faith. And and as you think about this, this is really talking about a spiritual journey, a relationship that you have with God. You are called to walk by faith in this relationship with God. What do I mean by that? Walking is one of the most common metaphors used in Scripture for the Christian life. Okay, so when Jesus talks about the broad road and the narrow road, it just naturally falls into this idea of walking alongside him. And with every journey you have, right, it doesn't matter where you're going. This week, we're actually going on vacation. We're going to go to the Smoky Mountains with uh, with Sarah's whole family. Uh, so we're going to have, hopefully, a good time at this campsite with about 30 people, okay? Uh, but every journey has a beginning point, 
It has a middle and it has an end, right? You have to start somewhere. You travel along so you can get to that destination, that end. So this first picture that Jesus gives us is actually focusing on the beginning. He says, enter through the narrow gate. Come in through the narrow gate. What is that gate? How does a person enter into this relationship with Jesus, enter into this walk with him? If you read the rest of Scripture, we see that you enter a relationship with Jesus through faith, okay? By trusting him, by saying, God, I can't do this on my own. God, I recognize I'm a sinner, and if I go my own way, the broad way, the the easy road, it's going to destroy me. And I know that sin leads to death. I don't want to go that way. And so how do we express faith in Christ? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. So when we talk about entering the narrow gate, it's a narrow gate because there's only one way in. Only one way in. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith that he is giving you the gift of forgiveness for your sins, not because you earned it. If you think you earned it, that's not faith. That's trusting in yourself, not in him. And so Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way into a relationship with him. There's only one way into the kingdom of God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we walk by faith, we begin that journey by trusting him completely and saying, God, I trust that you're the one who forgives me through Jesus Christ and I want to walk with you for the rest of my life. So that's how you begin this spiritual journey. You know, there's a lot of people out there that say there's many paths to heaven or many paths to happiness. And Christianity is too exclusive, shuts out too many people. I would say this to you. I actually think Christianity and a walk with Jesus is one of the most inclusive offers out there. It's open to anyone who will trust Christ. He won't turn anyone away who will trust him. And so all you have to do is believe in him and enter by that narrow way. Like we said, every journey has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so when Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate and stay on the narrow road. He's talking about the middle of that journey also a little bit. We're going to get to that in just a second. But walking the narrow road means that you're just journeying along through life. And you know that broad road, the wide road, looks a lot easier. Might look a lot more fun. But Jesus says, if you've entered through the gate by faith in me, stay on that narrow road. And the narrow road is defined by what he says is truly the way to live. He lays out so much of that in the Sermon on the Mount. um, When he says, it's a matter of the heart. I've created your heart to follow me, to know me, to have a relationship with me. Now follow me. And I would just encourage you with this. As you're walking down that middle section of the road, if you've already trusted Christ, if you've entered through the narrow gate and you're on that narrow road, Beware of those minor detours, right? We think, I'll just take a little detour, just a little one. It'll be fun. Watch out for those little ones, because so often they lead you far, far astray. And then we also see we have the beginning, the middle, and the end. The end of this journey will be eternity. 
He says, those who enter by this, will it leads to life. That's your destination. That's your destination. For those who are faithful till the end, they will experience life. Let me show you a picture here. How many of you have read this book, Pilgrim's Progress? Pilgrim's Progress. Okay, a good number of you. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to pick this up. This is actually a book that I try to read once a year. Okay, so it's not a perfect book. But uh, it's, it's a great book. This is one of those books that you would call great in the history of, of Christianity. In fact, uh, estimates are that this is the second most published book in the world. Okay, The first one being the Bible. And then they think Pilgrim's Progress is probably the second most published book in the history of printing books. Okay, So this book is an allegory. This book tells the story of a Christian, uh, this man named Christian, who is a pilgrim on a journey. And he makes progress on his journey. And one of the things I love about this book is, again, it's just word picture after word picture of what it is to walk down the journey of the Christian life. Christian runs into things like the giant of despair. How appropriate is it not only that he faces an adversary uh, of despair, because we all sometimes face that, right? Discouragement, despair, but it's a giant uh, isn't that how it feels sometimes, right? That despair and discouragement is just a giant that you can't get past. This book is so good about laying out situations and also showing us how to walk through them faithfully as a Christian. It's written in 1678, an allegory. But here's what this, this is a quote from the book about the moment that Christian, the pilgrim, came to faith in Jesus Christ. It says this, On his journey at the top of the hill stood a cross, And a little below at the bottom was a stone tomb. And in my dream, this is John Bunyan, the author, talking. He says, in my dream, just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosened from his shoulders and it fell off his back. It tumbled down the hill and continued to do so until it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell inside and it was seen no more. What a beautiful picture of what Christ does for us when we enter through that narrow gate. We trust him He takes away the burden of our sin, and it goes away forever. You're forgiven forever. And you begin this journey, like Pilgrim's Progress, on your way to what they call the celestial city, to heaven, your final destination, none of which is possible unless you enter by the narrow gate. True followers walk by faith. And so my invitation to you this morning is the same as what Jesus says. Enter by that narrow gate. If you've never done that, trust him today. Have you entered that gate by faith? If you haven't, today is the best day you could possibly find to do that. Trust him that he is the one who can forgive you for your sins and provide eternal life for you. And if you've already entered by that narrow gate and now you're walking down the road, I would just say this. Jesus says it's going to be difficult. And so if you're thinking about your life, uh, I would just ask you, what have you sacrificed in order to walk with him? What have you had to give up? What's the cost of discipleship? Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a whole book called The Cost of Discipleship. Because Jesus says it doesn't cost you anything to come to know me, to place your faith in, in me. Because I paid it all. Jesus paid it all. But it does cost you something to follow him. Because you have to give up your personal desires. Give up earthly pleasures that are outside God's will. Give up things that you're pursuing personal gain for selfish sake. Here's the thing. God's not against earthly pleasures. 
He's not against personal gain. But he says it all needs to fit into this whole thing of following me. Your purpose on earth. For those of you who are here in the auditorium, turn around and look at that quote on the back wall. I'm going to read it out loud for anybody who's watching online. It says this. Trinity Church will be a family of believers equipped and engaged to share the love of Christ in a world desperately needing him. Okay? You are called, if you're following Christ, to share his love with people who desperately need him. And so that's the reason we follow him. That's the reason we walk down this road. Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. And that's why we follow him. He saved us. Let's be a part of him saving others as well. So that's the first thing about standing firm in Christ. True followers walk by faith. The start or the beginning is emphasized in that first picture. But then the second picture that we see, the second statement from Jesus is that true followers produce fruit. Now this section uh, in verses 15 to the 23, you're going to see is actually given in the form of a warning, a caution. The first one was an invitation. The second one is more of a warning saying, beware of people who are not bearing fruit. Look at verse 15. It says this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many other mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those are some probably some of the most sobering words in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, you might think you're following me. Some of you think you are, but you're not. There are two pictures that help us understand what Jesus is getting at here, okay? Jesus is not saying that if you were following me, you can ever stray from that. He's not saying that you can lose your salvation, but he's saying we will recognize whether people are following Jesus, following him by the fruit that they bear. And the first picture he gives us in this thing is this, this idea of, it says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Look at that picture. Okay, it looks like a flock of sheep. Till you look closer, there's a wolf in the middle of the sheep. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying, be careful who you pay, who you listen to. Who's guiding you spiritually? Who's guiding you spiritually? Who is controlling the coordinates of your GPS? Is it your king, Jesus? Are you listening to him? Or are you listening to people who would lead you astray? And then he says, well, how can you tell the difference? How can you tell if people are leading me astray? Because sometimes people could lead you astray by sounding pretty good. He says it's very simple. It's by the fruit that they produce. The fruit that they produce. What I love about this picture 
is that he talks about good fruit versus bad fruit. And so uh, it's a really vivid picture of him saying that anyone who truly knows me and truly follows me is going to produce good fruit. What is that fruit? If you look in scripture, we know that the fruit that's produced is things like godly character, um, the fruit of the spirit uh, in Galatians, um, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We also know the fruit that's produced is when we lead other people to Jesus. Uh, The fields are ripe unto harvest, so we go out and harvest that fruit. True followers produce fruit. Look at verse 16. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In my backyard, I actually have a satsuma tree, two satsuma trees, okay? So these miniature orange trees. Uh, new to me when I moved down here to Louisiana, but I love it. So one year I went out, the first year I went out to pick these things, and I noticed in the middle of this satsuma tree, there was some other tree growing up, and there was no fruit on it. No fruit on it at all, because it wasn't a fruit tree. It could not produce satsumas because it wasn't a satsuma tree. So what do you think I did with that tree when I bought the house? Cut it down, burned it up. It had no other purpose. Look at verse 20. It says, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So the key word there is recognize, okay? Uh, You skip down to verse 23. Jesus says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. So this is interesting because we looked at the beginning of Matthew 7 where it says, judge not lest you be judged. So now Jesus is telling us to recognize, in other words, to evaluate whether people have good fruit or bad fruit. So how can he say don't judge, but go ahead and evaluate? I think the key there is that verse 23, where Jesus says he's the one who says depart from me. He's the one who is able to condemn or declare righteous. He's the one who pronounces judgment. As Christians, we're not called to call somebody guilty. We are called to evaluate their fruit. That's perfectly appropriate. And to weigh that so you know who's influencing you in your Christian walk. It's important to be around other people who are producing good fruit. Fruit in their lives and fruit in your lives. You know, the test is not if people say the right words. The test is not if they have the right religious actions. Uh, Here's a quote from Warren Wiersbe. He says this, How easy it is to learn a religious vocabulary and even memorize Bible verses and religious songs and yet not obey God's will. Look at what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Only those who have entered by the narrow gate and who are walking down that road of faith will enter into his kingdom. God says that's one of the tests you can see, is if you're producing fruit, if he's producing fruit in you. Jesus the King is asking you to do his will. True faith leads to faithfulness. Follow him. Be a true follower. Another verse that, that talks about this, and we're not going to read it today, but read John fourteen or John 15, verses 4 through 6, where Jesus says, Abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Relationship with Jesus yields fruit. True followers will produce fruit in their lives and in the lives of others. That's what we're called to do. Produce fruit. Then the third point that we see in this passage in verses 24 through 29 
is that true followers build on a strong foundation, on a strong foundation. So here's the third picture, uh, the third contrast that Jesus gives us, and it's actually given in the form of a promise. The first one was invitation. The second one uh, was a warning. And the third one now is a promise. He says this, if you truly follow me, you'll have a firm foundation. Matthew seven twenty four through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Jesus is asking you, is your life built on the rock or is your life built on the sand? Is your life shaped around Christ and his word or is it shaped around the ways of the world? All other ground is sinking sand. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Some of these old hymns say it so well, right? How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for his saints in his excellent word. The picture that Jesus gives here is really graphic. Like you can just see it in your mind's eye, right? Living in Louisiana, or if you live anywhere in a coastal area, you know that if a house doesn't have a good foundation, it's going to collapse. Here's a picture of a beach house. Built on the sand, when a storm comes through, the foundation washes away, and it is no more. It's a weak foundation. Contrast that with a house, in this case, a lighthouse in this picture, built on a strong foundation, built on the rock. And Jesus says, if you build your life on his words, on his teaching, it'll be like you built your house on a rock. And when he says building your house, building your life on his words, it's not just hearing them. Did you notice that? He says this, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, that one will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. In other words, as I said earlier, faith in Christ will lead you to faithfulness, to faithfully obey his word. And you'll bear fruit and you'll have a strong foundation to build your life on. James 1.22 talks about this. But what I love about what Jesus just says there is he lays it out very plainly. He says, not only hear my word, you also must do it. The foundation we build our lives on is the word and the promises of Jesus. Not anything else. Nothing that we could do. You can't build it on your wealth and think that as long as I have enough wealth, I'll be secure. You can't build it on relationships. You can't build it on a job. You can't build it on church membership. Your foundation can only be built on your relationship with Christ and following his word. That's the firm foundation. There's two foundations that stand out to me in my life experience. I want to show you a picture of each of them. So in college, uh, I attended college in, in Chicago. And so I remember looking out my dorm room window. I was on the 19th floor, and they were building a skyscraper a couple of blocks away. And for months, here's a picture of something, what it looked like. This is not, oops, that's not actually the picture of, of, of the one that was built, but it's just like this. They worked for months down in this pit with rebar and concrete. And I mean, I thought maybe they quit the project because all I saw was a pit there. But they were working on that foundation, building it up higher and higher and higher until finally they built the building on top of it. 
And one thing that stood out to me on that one is how long it took them to build that foundation. How long it took them to build on that foundation. It wasn't something that just happened overnight to where that foundation was was complete. And so what I would say to you is you're walking with Jesus. Take it one day at a time. How do you build on that foundation? One day at a time, do what the king asks you to do. He's the king of the universe. And he lays it out for you in places like the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what I'm asking you to do. It takes a long time to build on a foundation before a whole structure can rise out of the ground. So do what the king asks you to do. You know, some days you might be feeling like, I'm just laying bricks. I can't even see what this is becoming. Other days, you actually catch a glimpse of this is a huge skyscraper. This is a palace. You see the beauty of what God's creating from a life that follows him. One day at a time, do what the king asks you to do. Build on that foundation. Follow his instructions one day at a time. So that's the first foundation that stands out to me. The second one, here's a picture of me and a buddy two years ago uh, in Machu Picchu, Peru. Uh, If you know anything about Machu Picchu, this is an ancient Inca Indian civilization. Uh, This is uh, one of their holy sites. It's basically a, a mountain fortress just out in the middle of the Andes Mountains. And what was amazing to me about this one is how long a solid foundation lasts. Okay, This is a a region of the world that has earthquakes, whether the jungle actually took over this site for hundreds of years, and then they rediscovered it, and guess what? The foundation was still there. Here's another picture of Inca Indian architecture. Look at those bricks, how they fit together so exactly. They didn't have any power tools. They didn't have laser levels. They didn't have stone-cutting saws. Somehow, we really don't even quite know how they did this, but somehow they knew that if they laid a firm foundation, their buildings would last for centuries, and they have. In fact, if you one interesting note, if you look at that picture and just looking through those windows, they line up perfectly so that on the winter solstice, which happens on June 21st, the sun shines directly through those windows at sunrise and would hit like their sun god emblem, which they worshipped every year on that day. And they did that perfectly because they laid a firm foundation. Just amazing architecture. But my takeaway from that foundation was how long a good foundation will last. Even more than the Inca Indian architecture, the foundation that we're talking about will last forever. Jesus says if you build your life on a relationship with him, on his word and his instructions... It will last forever beyond this life into eternity. Trust God's promises. Trust his word. You can build your life on it. True followers build on a strong foundation. That's a promise from God. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. True faith will last not only in the storms of life, but also in the final judgment. You'll be protected from God's final judgment because of your faith in Christ. Your house will stand. You know, you have a king. His name is Jesus. If you've trusted him, if you've entered by the narrow gate, he is your king. So this morning, I would say this. If you haven't entered by the narrow gate, 
I would invite you to trust him. Trust him alone. Nothing else. No one else. If you have trusted him, I would invite you to produce fruit in your life. Embrace his way of life. It's the way of joy. And he wants to produce fruit in your life. Work with him. And keep building on that firm foundation. There's a quote from Pilgrim's Progress at the very end of the book. Where Christian actually reaches his final destination. He reaches the celestial city. And here's what John Bunyan says as he's writing this story. He says, now I saw in my dream that these two men, Christian is one of them, went in at the gate to the celestial city. And lo, as they entered, they were transfigured and they had raiment put on that shone like gold. Then I heard in my dream that all the bells in the city rang again for joy and that it was said unto them, enter ye into the joy of your Lord. And I also heard the men themselves that they sang with a loud voice, saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sitteth upon that throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, if you've trusted Christ, if you've entered by that narrow gate, if you know the King, that's your destination. Forever and ever you will worship him. And so I would invite you to invite as many as you can on this journey to walk with him by faith, to follow the king, and to enter into his joy when your life ends. Will you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that as we build our lives, we would build them on this firm foundation of you and your promises and your word. And God, we thank you for these things that you've showed us in the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, I pray that we would hear them, that we would do them. And Lord, as we go forward this summer, we would invite many, many people to join us in this journey, uh, in this journey that ends in eternal life with you. Now to you who are able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of your glory with great joy, to you, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. You are dismissed. Now go and make disciples.